Good morning, everyone. Um, today I'm going to just go ahead and read a passage from Exodus. It's chapter 20, and it's verses 1 through 6, if you'd like to flip there. I'm going to be reading out of the NLT edition. The headline for this is Ten Commandments for the Covenant Community. And verse 1 says, Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. All right, church, let's turn to 1 John chapter 5. Not for the last time, but for the last time in this study series. I think we'll see as we go further along in this uh, the study this morning just how much what we read or listened to Christian read this morning from Exodus um, chapter 20, just how much that pertains to what we're going to be looking at as we close out this letter that John wrote to the churches. And as John brings all these studies in this letter to a conclusion this morning, he's going to do it, I believe, in a grand fashion, but it's very subtle. It's very subtle, and, and, and it's tempting for me oftentimes when I, when I teach and I come to the end of a series where I want to like, make this big, like, let's go back and look at everything that we've learned, and let's talk about But John just kind of does it. He just kind of does it on his own because this has been uh, a letter that's written with an amplification style, meaning that he's layering and going back over and over. Most of these lessons that we've learned in 1 John have been repeated many times. But he ends with something that's so pointed and so clear and so sharp that I really don't think we need to do much for it besides consider how this impacts us within the context of what we read. Now, remembering the audience of his day is very important for this final section because the churches in the region of Ephesus is uh, the focus of his letter. This letter was most likely circulated to all the churches in that region, but we know that this is the group that John was writing to. And Ephesus was known for something in the ancient world, and that was idolatry. If you remember from the book of Acts, Paul had a very interesting interaction in the city of Ephesus when he was... Uh, there and they started chanting you remember the riot in Ephesus where they chanted great is Diana of the Ephesians or great is Artemis of the Ephesians and they chanted over and over and over and they were worked up and yelling and screaming and freaking out and breaking windows and the scripture says most of them didn't know why they were there most of them didn't understand what the purpose of their of their placement at that situation really was for but they were just chanting because the temple of Diana was there. One of the wonders of the ancient world. They were a people who were committed to not only the worship of, of Diana, but they were people who made a lot of money, a lot of profit off of the idolatry of the city. In fact, one theologian claimed based off of writings from Roman historians such as Tacticus that no town in the world had so many connections with the stories of the ancient gods. 
that no one city had more connection with the stories of the ancient gods, and no town was more proud of them. No town exploited them more than the city of Ephesus, and in Ephesus, idolatry was indeed a way of life. If no town was more proud of their idols, I wonder if any nation is less aware of them than ours. Because when I look at the way that idolatry is spoken to in the New Testament especially, as it's dealt with by the church in the early church age, it's fascinating to me that we can think it's something of the past or think of it in terms of mere images or carvings. Idolatry is very much alive today. It's a question worth pondering when we wonder if our nation is very unaware of their idols. And I think it's worth pondering not just outside the church walls, but within it. I think we need to think about whether or not we have an idolatry problem in this room right now, in our homes, in our own lives. Martin Luther's large catechism discussion of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, from Exodus 20. Yes, that's why I picked it. From Exodus 20, especially verse 3, he included this statement. Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. G.K. Beale would add that an idol is whatever your heart clings to or relies on for ultimate security. The idol is whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. Well, that really broadens the picture, doesn't it? That's a much broader picture than thinking of some little trinket that sits on a shelf. Now we're talking about things that we have made ultimate. Now we're talking about things that matter to us so much they dominate our thought process and in fact the very direction or course of our lives. When it comes to confronting idolatry, we're not talking about an ancient world issue. We're talking about a daily battle that every single one of us is actively waging war in. And here in our text this morning, we're given a vital reminder that we don't have to settle for nor be bound to earthly idols because we have been given all that we need and so much more. Let's read our text and we'll break this down a little bit this morning. Well, hopefully a lot of it in a short bit of time. That was funnier in my head. Picking up in verse 18 of 1 John chapter 5. He continues, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one. That is in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children. Guard yourself from idols. This is the word of the Lord. We've discussed many times in this letter how we're to confess sin, humbly repent, and be restored by God, and all this as his children. All this is being done as we recognize that we are his children. However, John's warned us 
against habitual unrepentant sin multiple times. And verse 18 of chapter 5 is a perfect example of this amplification because we have read a very similar statement in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. You'll probably remember it. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. Now, I've never met a Christian yet that believes they cease sinning on the day they receive Jesus as Savior. Most of them... In fact, if they're having issues with that conversation, are wondering if they're truly saved because they still sin so much. I've never met somebody who's like, yeah, I got saved and stopped sinning. I've been perfect ever since. You know, you're chuckling because if someone said that to you, you would laugh at them. You'd be like, whatever, dude. You know, give it two seconds. They're like, why are you laughing at me? Aha, see, I got you to sin that quickly. But you guys... So many of us would confess that we become more aware of our sin problem as we mature in Christ, right? It's not that we start to believe that we we are sinless. We start to recognize, I have more of a sin problem than I ever understood before. In fact, if we think that we have less of a problem with sin as we get older, we might be delusional. Because the wisest, most humble people that I have grown up speaking to have told me that it doesn't get any better when you get older. It actually gets a little bit more clear just how wretched and pitiful we are. And for a reminder of that, our bodies disintegrate in sin as they go along, right? No one's feeling really great as they get older and older about their ability to do less. I hurt after family camp. I'm not supposed to, thank you. I'm not supposed to hurt after family camp. I'm supposed to feel rejuvenated. Ah, I went camping with the church. Like, I feel like I'm dying. I'm cooked, I'm sore, I can't sleep apparently on any other surface besides the perfectly calibrated mattress, or my back wages war against the rest of my body. And it's true. So many of us are like, oh yeah, I I just take an air mattress. That doesn't help. That doesn't help. Especially when it deflates middle of the night and you're like this. You know, you wake up and your wife's lighter, so she's floating on air. Don't worry, sweetie, I'll iron out these rocks for you so you can float. You guys, many of us would confess that as we grow and as we mature, as we move on, we recognize I am really wretched indeed. I am really lost. And boy, the gospel of Jesus gets really big and really powerful. when we come to this understanding that he has saved us from our sin. Because when I become fully aware of just how gross and detestable my sin is, I see his power even more. Grace abounds even more. He's revealing that which must be removed from our lives when his light shines on us and reveals sin. His sanctifying work within us is not to be feared. In fact, the reason we fear the revelation of our sin is because we have an idol. We fear revelation of sin because it gives us a reality to look at ourselves with. I don't want to see what I really am. I want to live under an arrogant, it's satisfying, just fine. Why? Idle. I have an ego problem. It's a problem. I think it's satisfying me besides the grace of God, the goodness of Christ, which shines light on my problem, reveals to me that I actually do indeed have a big problem. You guys, we still sin. What John is saying is that we are not helpless slaves of sin in this passage. Let me remind you what verse 18 says again. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We still sin. Alfred Plummer said it really well. A child of God may sin, but his normal condition is resistance to evil. 
our normal condition is to resist evil. John isn't saying you're never going to sin again. He talked about that prior. He talked about it before in the first chapter of 1 John when he says, confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's present tense. That's in the now. We should be confessing our sin now. And so when he says words like, we know that if you've been born of God, you don't sin. He's saying you habitually are not sinning. You are not pursuing sin anymore. You are not enslaved to it anymore. And that's why he talks about those in the world being enslaved to the devil in the next couple of verses. The one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. When you possess something valuable, you want to keep it in the safest location, right? No, it's not your mattress. Your kids find things there, right? They, they have a nose for stuff. You hide candy in the house, they know where it is. Except my wife. When she hides it, I never find it. Someday. You guys, we recognize that many times that means it can't, Whatever this special thing is, right? Whatever this precious thing is, it cannot be in our hands or in our pockets at all times. They tell you to keep your social security card where? In a safe place. Why? Because your pockets is ain't safe. You swim with them. I remember swimming. You guys remember the Motorola Razor? I think it was like that then. Remember that? They're always like, oh, it's so thin. You don't even know it's there. Truth. I ran into the lake. I swam all the way out to the dock without realizing it was in my pocket. It's like, good job, Motorola. You guys, they tell you to leave your social security number in a safe, your card in a safe location so that it can't be taken, right? Not to keep it on me personally. I'll take it swimming. I'll drop it. I'll throw it in the wash. We understand that some things are just too valuable, so they're placed in a safe or in a keep. Now notice the language of verse 18 again. The one who is born of God keeps him. Speaking of believers, he's talking about Jesus. The one who is born of God keeps him. Those are those that belong to him. Those are believers. Church, we've been born again. He's the keeper of our lives. Jesus is the one that keeps us. He keeps us safe. He holds us fast. He is the safe location that you and I dwell, so much so that we find our identity in him, amen? That's where we find our identity, is in Christ. The enemy will never be able to pull off that heist. He cannot come and find a way to, you know, get this elaborate heist going. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in echo mode right now. <laughs> Hello, me. Anyway, so you guys... There's a heist that's going on. The enemy can't do that. He can't come and steal us from Jesus. He can't break into the vault of Christ. John is coming down the home stretch of this letter by reminding us of absolute essentials to our faith. We are free from the slavery of sin. Aren't you thankful? You are free from the slavery of sin. We're secure and protected by Jesus himself, and the enemy cannot pick that lock. The word translated touch here is interesting. Look at the text again. The one who is born of God keeps him, speaking of Jesus keeping us, and the evil one does not touch him, that would be us. Now think about this. The word touch here is hapto. It's the idea of grabbing hold of something with intent to harm. So it's not just like, poke, you're it. Don't think of it that way. This is coming after, so this isn't your kids in the backseat of the car. You guys, it has the, well maybe it is, the idea of grabbing hold of something with intent to harm. Maybe it is your kids in the backseat of the car. That might apply. 
You guys, by saying the enemy doesn't touch us, John is saying he cannot take us or seize us for his own. He cannot take you for his own. Alexander Ramsey observes in this passage, he is well kept whom Christ keeps. The enemy of souls cannot lay hold of him. He assaults, but cannot seize. He can assault us, but he cannot seize us from the Lord. I hope you're starting to feel a little bit better about your relationship with Christ. I hope you're starting to feel a little bit more safe. See, my goal is to make you really insecure in your idols and really safe in Jesus this morning. If we can accomplish that, then we've hit our mark. You ought to feel very safe in Jesus and very insecure about your idols. Because Jesus is the one who keeps us so that the enemy cannot seize us. But if you give yourself to an idol, that is vulnerability. That is dangerous. John 8, verses 34 through 36, Jesus is speaking. This was a very difficult chapter for the Pharisees to handle. Truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. Do you feel shackled? Do you feel tied to something? Do you feel like you cannot break free of something? That is an idol. You are protected in Christ through his blood. You're free in him. Children are in the protection or keep of God. Those in the world who have not believed in Christ, however, look at verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. The term of God there is speaking about being begotten. It's talking about how we were born of God. This is what it means to be born again or be a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about being born again. So you are of God. You are his children. You're no longer children of this world. Romans 8 is the first chapter I think of when I, when I meditate on being a child of God. Paul writes this in verses 16 and 17. You probably know these. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with them so that we may also be glorified with him. Back in verse 20, John will continue explaining that, that we've become heirs in Christ. It's interesting about this, you guys, because what does it mean? What are we inheriting in Christ? What am I inheriting in Jesus? What am I getting out of this deal, so to speak? Now realize, first of all, when I say it that way, it feels a little like, ugh. That feels gross to me. What am I getting out of this deal that I made with God when I gave him my life? He saved me from all my sin, and I literally brought nothing to the table. What am, what am I getting out of this? Some people think they're going to get success. Some people have been lied to and think they're going to get money think their pain is all going to go away, that their lives are going to be perfect. I tell you what, guys, when I got saved, I did not turn into Brad Pitt. But that's not what God wants for me. You guys, you realize that what we have been promised in Christ is not so superficial. It's not so possession-based. It's not so idolatrous as we think. In fact, what we have become and what we have been given are tied together. Those who are heirs with Christ 
inherit eternal life. We inherit eternal life. Now think about this. The children of the devil inherit eternal separation. That's why he says they are under the sway of the world. They're going in that direction. This is why we should never take lightly the idea of being in the sway of the enemy. This is a horrifying situation to be found in because it's removing us not just from what God has for us in Christ, but it's scary to think about being separated from God for all eternity, especially if you really know him, especially if you really know who he is. What does it look like to be under the sway of the enemy? Would it look like blatant occultism? I don't think so. I think that'd be too obvious. We know the enemy, right? You know that he's crafty. He's slimy. He asks those questions that you kind of want the answers to, but you already know. Did he really say you couldn't eat of that tree? Is that what God really said? I mean, look at the fruit, right? Think about this. Satan wants to introduce just a little bit of sin because a little bit does what? Well, those of you who know Galatians 5 really well know that a little leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. I'll read it to you, Galatians 5, verses 7 through 9. He says, you were running well. This is Paul speaking to a church that he dearly loves. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. You're being duped, Paul says. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. The enemy doesn't dump a whole pound of leaven in. It's a light sprinkle. It's a very light sprinkle. And so John shows us what that subtle sprinkle looks like. He says this in verse 20, we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We're in the true one. That is in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then he shows us where the sprinkle is. He says, this is what you need to be aware of. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. This is something subtle. This is something dangerous. This is something that John looks at them and says, beloved, don't allow this in your life. The enemy is cunning. He's caught every single one of us at a different time in some kind of idolatrous pursuit. Now, I realize that in James chapter 1, it talks about, it's like, you sin on your own because you have a sinful heart. I get that. You can't use the devil made me do it. However, he does assault and he does trick and he does scheme to get us to pursue ourselves, to get us to pursue a kingdom of self rather than the kingdom of God. And John says this, we know in verse 20 that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We're in the true one. That's in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He is everything we need and more. He is our one and only. This is the inheritance that Paul speaks of in Romans 8. And Peter agrees in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. 
He says this is so much more than we can wrap our heads around. Our inheritance is eternal life. It's perfect fellowship with God for all eternity. It's the fulfillment of our created purpose. We weren't created to have a lot of stuff. We were created originally, when you look at man in the garden, we were created to care for the things that God made and enjoy fellowship with them. To enjoy that walk in the garden with God. That's what Jesus has brought us back to be able to do again. He's brought us back from sinfulness. He's healed our wounds and he gives us this relationship with God again. He didn't promise us all the cool stuff. He didn't promise me all the sweet Nerf weapons. Sorry. He actually promised us eternal life the way he had originally made it to be. What Jesus is doing is restoring us back to the beginning and so much more. And so much more than that. That is our inheritance. It's crazy how often we misunderstand what eternity in heaven actually are. Don't think possessions. That's an idolatrous mindset. Don't think about what you're going to get there. I'm going to have a mansion. You're living in God's house. I'm going to have a cool room. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. You guys, think of being in his keep. Don't think about possessions when you think about the fulfillment of God's promises to you. Think about eternity with God. Think about fellowship. Think about fulfillment and relationship like you've never experienced. And you're like, oh, but I have a relationship with Jesus right now. Oh, but you're tied to flesh. You're tied to sinful flesh. This is still a battle that we're waging. Now, you can experience it now, but you're being sanctified for then. You are being cleansed and sanctified for that day. And that's why in Philippians 1, 6, it says, he who began a work in you will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. You're not done yet. Praise God. Praise God, I'm not done yet. (laughs) I can't wait to be finished. And I'm glad it's not right now. I'm glad that's in his timing. John has made this point over and over again that the reward is eternal life. Just a few verses back in 1 John 5, verse 11, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. This letter has been so theologically rich, and I'm so glad that the Spirit inspired John to end it the way that he does, because it calls us back to checking ourselves to make sure that we've actually grasped it. In the coolest way possible by saying, do you have idols? Because if you have idols you are not receiving the fullness of what Jesus Christ has for you. And that is eternal life. That is a future with him. This is our inheritance, not some castle in the sky. In our Father's house, there are many rooms. Jesus said it in John 14 too. It's that idea that I've spoken of often of recently. God has brought us into his house. He's adopted us as his children. But some of us still have that idea that in heaven, we're going to gain a physical reward. And there's a reason we think that way. It's our flesh. We think about getting something tangible. Well, I'm going to get something. What am I going to get? I've been getting things every Christmas my whole life, right? We got to stop thinking physically like that. We got to start thinking spiritually. We got to start thinking about eternal life. So much better, untouchable. It's in the keep of Jesus himself. Jesus is the true one. He has given to us eternal life. This is what we were created for in the beginning. He removes the shackles of sin once for all. 
to desire, for lack of a better word, stuff, is a revelation that we are thinking in terms of flesh. You guys, John, after revealing the glory of Jesus, the true God, by the way, if anyone says that Jesus isn't God, that he was just a good guy, take him to 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. He is the true God and eternal life. Open and shut. He says, this is who Jesus is. Don't forget that. Remember, there was a lot of false teachings. And then he says about those false teachings, little children, guard yourselves from idols. What does your heart cling to or rely on for ultimate security? What do our hearts cling to or rely on for ultimate security? Where do you find your security? Where do you find your peace? Where do you find your centeredness? Where do you find your comfort? Where's your happy place? What's the thing you're longing for every day? What's the thing that if someone took it away from you, you would just be wrecked to the ground and not able to move on? If it's anything other than Jesus, let's address our idols. Let's open up and start dealing with our idol problem. You guys, this is convicting, so convicting for me. The idol is whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. Worship team, you guys can come on up. You guys, I just have been blown away as I've been finishing my studies through this letter at how convicting. I thought the Sermon on the Mount was convicting, and it was when we studied through that prior to 1 John. It's almost like John brought in a lot of the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount and brought them into just this church reality for us. So many things that he teaches in this letter, we've, we've seen Jesus teach. We can go back, and we did often go through the Gospel of John and just see him resonating with things that were said and explaining them further. But you guys, I don't think anything has hit me as heavy as this final statement by John at the very end of the letter where he says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. We have an idolatry problem. We have an issue. Church, we have to come to terms with what these idols are. What is it that you hold on to in this life more than Jesus? What is it that you need or want in this life more than Jesus? We must address this. And I want to give you guys an opportunity this morning to do that. We're going to take a moment. I'm just going to very simply have everyone pray on your own. And I want you to ask God to show you your idols. I want you to ask the Lord, what is it that if you took this away, I would not be able to move on? I would be devastated. Not, not in a way of like, if my loved one died, I would grieve them. If my house burned down, I would lose all the pictures because we still have physical pictures. I'm old. You know, like in boxes, and I wouldn't have all those pictures from when my kids were little. I'm not talking about grieving things that are sad like that. I'm talking about, I couldn't go on without this. If you take this from me, God isn't good. 
Have you ever thought that way? The one thing that God could take from me that I would look and say, God isn't good anymore, that's your idol. That's your idol. If I look at something and say, if he does this, he is not good. If anything in this life, your love or value of it causes you to question the goodness and the love of God, it is an idol. It's so much more than just a little image that sits on a shelf. It's the thought and the love of the heart. It's the part of us that looks at other people and says, I can forgive you for this, but I won't forgive you for that. You have an idle problem. You value yourself above them. It's the thing that says, if this possession ends up being taken away from me, or if somebody else gets this and I can't have it, I'm going to get angry and I'm be mad and I'm going to say that God doesn't love me anymore. We all know these situations. We all know what these things look like in our own hearts. And we need to address it because John lovingly, when he says little children, he's saying, I love you, my beloved kids, please guard yourself from these things. And if it's a thought process or if it's a physical item, I want to cry out to you, church, guard yourself from these idols. Give them up. Give them back to the Lord. So often, idols in our lives, you guys are, as Keller would say, they're just good things that we've made ultimate. I think that's why they're hard to distinguish sometimes. God gives us good things, and we're like, oh, the Lord, he's just provided this for me. Is that the only reason you believe he loves you? Is the item the only reason you believe in his love for you? Do you love that item more than you love him? Would you have the heart of Job if he says, God has given, God can take away, I will worship and praise his name. If that is a place that we come to in our own hearts, and I honestly believe, church, that every single one of us is wrestling with this, then we need to address it. Let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes, and I just want to take a moment. Lord, as we close this study through your word, Father, any words that I've spoken that are not of you, would you just cleanse those, cleanse those from our minds? Anything, Lord, that you have spoken by the power of your spirit, would you bring that forward into our thoughts? And Lord, I ask that as we pray, that there will be a purification of our hearts happening, that we would recognize that we do not need things. Jesus, we need you. We need you more than any anyone else Jesus we ask as your people as your church both individually and collectively this morning that you would take the throne of our hearts right now that you would sit in your rightful place as Lord and King of our lives that you would Reveal to us the things that we love more than you, that you would convict us lovingly. God, I ask in your kindness, in your gentleness, as you call us to with one another, that your kindness and your gentleness would enter into this and that there would be no one here who feels condemned that is in you. That every single person would be experiencing a refreshment as your spirit convicts. Because we can recognize right here this morning, you are here to break the shackles. You are here to give us the ability to shake the chains of sin off and to look at idolatry and say, don't need it. We just need Jesus. Lord, as we take a moment to pray,
with our heads bowed and our, bowed and our eyes closed, would you just reveal to us what our idols are? Jesus, we confess. Thank you for your faithfulness to forgive us. Thank you for your word. As we stay in this place of prayer for just a moment, would you speak words of joy and encouragement to your people? Restorative words that would help them to remove these things from their lives, Lord, to set them aside or replace them in the proper setting. Spirit convict.